We read together from the prose version of the Psalms and we turn to Psalm 139. Headings of the Psalms generally we don't uh, take as part of the inspired scriptures, but they are certainly uh, wise and ancient guides to the authorship and the circumstances uh, in which the Psalms were produced. Sometimes we know a good deal about the situation, as in this case, uh, other than the author, we don't really know anything at all uh, about it. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in, behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. One worrying characteristic of modern life, and there are many that we could select, but one surely is the degree to which we live under constant surveillance. Our actions are watched by a multitude of closed-circuit television cameras, far more often than we realize. Our movements are tracked by GPS. There are those who know all the time where we are, where we've been, where we are going. Our online activity 
more, again, than we realize, often is monitored, recorded by those of whom we are not at all aware. Even our words can be picked up by some of the uh, electronic assistants, Alexa, whoever else. And there's a debate currently in in Germany whether uh, recordings from Alexa uh, and other such devices can be used as evidence in court cases. Evidence that's picked up with no awareness on the part uh, of those who are being recorded. And isn't it true from time to time we get a real shock uh, when we realize some of the information uh, that's held on us uh, that we never knowingly supplied? You find online, you do a search in one company and then constantly you're bombarded by adverts for the same product from other companies, some you've maybe never heard of. You're tracked, you're observed, you're under surveillance so much of the time. Of course, one of the great concerns about that uh, is a lack of trust of those who hold the information. We don't even know who they are. How could we possibly trust them? How do we know what use they will make of that information? It might be for marketing, but it could be for all kinds of of other reasons. And we certainly cannot assume uh, that those who are uh, holding this information are necessarily benevolent. They may have no uh, interest in our welfare. They probably don't. And so the lack of trust often is well justified. We have no reason uh, to assume that those who hold information will use it well or wisely. The Bible tells us that we are constantly under surveillance. It doesn't have in mind electronic devices tracking internet activity. But we're always under the surveillance of one who the Bible tells us has our best interests at heart in ways that we would not for a moment attribute to any other holder of information, certainly in this world. And knowing that is not something to make us afraid, but something rather that should bring us comfort and encouragement. We understand that we are constantly in the eyes of the Lord. We are, so to speak, under his surveillance every moment. And here is one who uses all his knowledge with infinite wisdom and love. I want to think of this God uh, this evening as we turn to the psalm we read earlier, Psalm 139, because it is fundamentally a psalm about God. It's often we read the psalms uh, and our chief concern is the psalmist and what does he think and what's happening to him and what's he doing and That's proper. Like all the Psalms, the focus chiefly is on God. What kind of God is he? To return to Psalm 139, we want to look at the the Psalm as a whole. Our theme this evening is searched and known. Searched and known. A Psalm divides up 
quite conveniently into four parts. And we just simply take them in turn. And what we want to see chiefly is what do they tell us about God? What do we need to be reminded of? What do we need to learn about him? And the first thing, as we look at verses 1 to 6, is the Lord knows all things. The Lord knows all things. David is thinking of various perfections or attributes of God in the course of this psalm. And the first one that he considers in the opening six verses is the perfection of God we call omniscience. God knows all things. God's knowledge is of all things past and present and future. All things actual or possible, what will happen, what could happen, all of that is known exhaustively to God. His knowledge is complete and comprehensive. How different, of course, from our knowledge that is so limited and so fragmented. And as with all the perfections of God, very, very quickly, we come to realize how different God is from us. We have knowledge, but the knowledge of God is complete and exhaustive. It really goes beyond what our little minds can fathom. It's no wonder that David concludes in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's beyond what his mind can compass. Now that doesn't mean he, he doesn't to think of it and it doesn't say he throws up his hands and says, I can't understand this and goes away and forgets it. No. He is brought face to face with his own limitations very quickly, but what he does understand is a source of delight and comfort, as we will see. All the, the perfections of God are infinite and beyond our understanding. One of the, the courses in first year in theology that the students uh, at the theological college undertake is looking at the doctrine of God. And we look at the various perfections of God. Some farther outside our grasp than others, but all of them are beyond what our tiny minds can comprehend. And that's a good thing. Because often the God that we serve, the God we follow, is a God who's small and limited and perhaps a slightly bigger version of us. And then you come to the scriptures and you see what an awesome, infinite God he is in all of his perfections. And omniscience is one of them. I often we say in all sorts of circumstances, I don't know. And many things we don't know. God never has to say, I don't know. He knows everything exhaustively. And like all of God's perfections, omniscience isn't a piece of cold, abstract theology. And you could approach it like a philosopher, and there are scholars who do that. They can speculate and toss ideas back and forward and so forth. 
But the Bible doesn't treat God's perfections in that sort of abstract, cold, academic way. Far from it. As American RP pastor Gordon Keddy puts it, he says that God's perfections are, he says, essential practical foundations of a close personal walk with the Lord. And Gordon's exactly right. Close personal walk with God. That is why we're to ponder and think about the perfections of God. It's to enhance our personal walk with him. They shape our relationship with the Lord. How we live, our whole spiritual attitude is determined by what we think about God. And so they are the essential practical foundations. As David thinks of God's knowledge, his omniscience, his knowing all things, he thinks of it in very personal terms. It's not a doctrine floating up in the air somewhere. It is right down in the detail of David's life and of your life and my life as well. You have searched me, he says at the beginning of the psalm, and know me. It is personal, it is individual. None of God's people is lost in the crowd. That happens often in life. There are the shy people always at the back of the crowd. They get overlooked, they get lost in the crowd. But every one of God's people can say, you have searched me. And you know me, as personal as it is possible to be. Indeed, the God who is described in Psalm 139 isn't a God who is distant and outside of ourselves. Yes, he is the infinite creator. We're not taking away anything from that. But at the same time, he in a real sense is inside our lives. And of course, we struggle to take that in. But David writes uh, there about his thoughts. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Uh, We say sometimes, I'm not a mind reader. And we're not, but God is. He knows every thought uh, that we think. More than that, uh, in verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Before we think of our words, God knows them. And he knows what they are going to be. It is exhaustive knowledge, knowing our thoughts, our words completely. He examines us. There in verse 3, you discern my going out, my lying down. You discern. And the word that's used uh, by David there is a word that's also used in agriculture for winnowing. You know, when the grain was gathered in uh, and it would be beaten, the husks and the grain would be separated, and then it would be tossed up in the air to let the wind blow the husks away and just leave the grain. That was winnowing, sorting good from bad. And that's the word David uses for how the Lord uh, discerns all our actions, everything about us, winnowing, separating the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff. Searching, knowledge, nothing hidden. Verse 5, you've laid your hand upon me. 
And that's a picture that we can take in two ways, I think, and we're probably meant to do that. You've laid your hand upon me. One sense would be, as it were, of the authority figure. The policeman puts his hand on your shoulder. When you're doing something wrong and you jump because you're caught on, God lays his hand on us. He does that sometimes, doesn't he? And it can be a shock to us. But I think the other sense of God has laid his hand upon us is a a word that is telling us that God protects us and watches over us and his hand is on us so that we do not come to any harm that's outside his will. And I think both are there. There's a sense of security. God's hand is on us. We're not beyond his care and his protection And yet it does also call for careful living in case we feel his heavy hand on us on occasion. Both are there. The Lord knows all things. Exhaustive knowledge of our thoughts, our words before we speak them, before we even think of them. The Lord knows every detail about us in a fullness that we don't have, we don't know ourselves. There's much about ourselves we don't know. Sometimes we surprise ourselves. We never surprise God. The God of Psalm 139 is the Lord who knows all things. Every thought, every word. His hand is upon us, restraining from sin, protecting from danger. The Lord knows all things. Then verses 7 to 12, we see the Lord is in all places. The Lord is in all places. So we thought about God's perfection of omniscience. Now here in the second part of the psalm, we're turning to think of God's perfection of omnipresence. He is present in all places, in the entire creation. He may be present in one place to bless. He may be present in another place to judge. There is nowhere in creation from which God is absent, not even hell. He's present there to judge. But he's there. There is nowhere in the creation from which God is absent. David imagines, I think, a hypothetical attempt to hide from the Lord. What if, what if I were to try and hide from God? And all the, the efforts he imagines he knows are futile. There is really no hiding place from God. And the reason is the, the very nature of God himself. That's why there's no hiding place. Where can I go from your spirit? Verse 7. And surely we recall Jesus' uh, words in John 4, 24 to the woman at the well. God is spirit. A spirit, there are no limits to his presence. Because God has no dimensions. We have height and girth. We have dimensions and we're limited. But God is spirit. Without a physical body, God is everywhere 
in the creation. There are no limitations to his presence. And so the answer to David's question, and he knows the answer, where can I go from your spirit, is nowhere. Nowhere that he might go would be a hiding place. He considers the impossibility of escape. Where can I flee from your presence? Verse 7. There's no escape in the heavens, however high up he went. God is there. There would be no escape in the depths if I make my bed in the depths. And really the word he uses there is the word for the grave. Alive or dead, heaven or in the earth, there's no escape from God. Of course, that is something that we ought to think seriously about, that we never are outside the eye of God. We're not hidden from him. But equally well, I think this is the, uh, this is the main point David is making, because it's, it's written primarily for encouragement. There is warning, but there's chiefly encouragement. We're never beyond the Lord's help. Wherever we are, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, the Lord is there. He is there to help us in any trauma, in any hardship, in any test. He's there. We've never strayed outside his care and keeping. If I take the wings of the dawn, I go as far east as possible. That's what David means goes towards the, uh, the sunrise in the east. God's there. The far side of the sea means the far side of the Mediterranean. That was the sea from David's point of view. If I go away to the west, you're still there. West, east, up, down. It doesn't matter where he goes or where he is. The Lord is there. Even there, your hand will guide me. And that suggests chiefly this is encouragement. This awareness that God is wherever we go. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And to God, as David writes in verse 12, the darkness will not be dark. Ever been in a situation of complete darkness, away from the city lights away from the light pollution, perhaps out in the middle of the country, where the dark really is dark. It's a dark you can feel that presses in upon you. And often, of course, in biblical times, that would have been the experience of people. And how precious then, and how comforting to think that in the darkest dark, it's light to God. He sees perfectly clearly. We're not hidden from his sight. And we're not beyond his care and his keeping. Whatever our situation, wherever we are, whatever we're dealing with, God is not at a distance from us. He's right there where we are. Perhaps think of Psalm 23, going through the valley of the shadow of death. We've commented, but I think it's worth repeating often, God doesn't say, or the psalmist doesn't say, 
When I pass through the valley, you're at the far end waiting for me. You're with me as I go through. You're with me in the deepest, darkest part of the valley. At no point are you absent. At no point am I hidden from your loving eyes. You're there. The Lord is in all places. For the Lord knows all things. His omniscience. The Lord is in all places. His omnipresence. Then the third section of the psalm, verses 13 to 18. The Lord possesses all power. The Lord possesses all power. Now we're thinking of God's perfection of omnipotence. That's three omnis. Omniscience, omnipresence, and now omnipotence. God is able to do all things that he wills and is able to carry out his plans in detail. Now, things that God can't do. God cannot do anything that's contrary to his holiness. And we don't want him to be able to do that. And that doesn't take away from the omnipotence of God. He is able to do everything he wills and is able to carry out his plans in detail. And wherever we look in the scriptures, we have testimony to this wonderful fact about our God. Daniel 4, 35. These are words, a most unexpected source, words from Nebuchadnezzar brought down to the lowest level in a moment by the power of God, brought to realize his own frailty. Daniel 4.35, he confesses of God, he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. It is a very powerful statement of the absolute sovereignty of God. He does whatever he wills. Well, it's in heaven, it's on earth, in the farthest reaches of the universe. He does whatever he wills. And notice David again thinks of it in very personal terms. These are big doctrines. These are truths that very quickly our minds struggle to grasp and yet David brings it down to a very personal level that we can relate to. Thinking of his own origins. You created my inmost being, he says in verse 13. A very powerful uh, description here of the forming uh, of uh, the embryo of the fetus of the baby. And it has profound implications uh, for our view of life before birth. But it is God shaping David right from his first moments. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, he says in verse 14. And isn't that the truth? At whatever stage in life we have reached, And as we see how the body functions, the different 
elements of it, the different aspects of it. And it does often amaze us. It amazes us when it works well. It amazes us sometimes when it doesn't work. And we're brought back to this awareness. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. In ways beyond uh, human ingenuity. Medics can seek to repair and to help the body to function. But the whole mechanism as a whole, if we can call it that, is the product of infinite wisdom on the part of a creator, sovereign God. A God directly involved from the very first moments of human existence. And it's not only conception and birth that lead David to think of the power of God, but whole life is planned by God. David writes there in verse 16, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. In the mind of God and the plan of God, every moment of our lives is there. Before God said, let there be light, we were in his mind. And all of our days were planned for us by a sovereign God. And some may think, well, that's a fearful thought. Well, if God has planned every day, every aspect of our lives, then we're not free. We're we're just slaves to the, the plan of God. Now we could take time to think of that and the various theological and philosophical questions that that raises. But as David writes it here in Psalm 139 under the direction of the Holy Spirit, this is something that is delightful to him. It's not a fearful thing to think all my days are in God's book before one of them came to be. The psalmist delights in it. We ought to delight We ought to be able to say with David in verse 17, How precious to me are your thoughts. Those thoughts that embrace every moment before we were born. How precious are the thoughts of God that have planned our ways, that have planned our salvation in Christ. If that doesn't delight us, surely there's something wrong. The knowledge of God and the power of God and the presence of God should delight the believer's heart. His thoughts to us are precious. Because the God who is this sovereign God is one who wills what is best for his people. We said at the outset that part of our concerns about people holding information on us the whole surveillance culture, is we don't trust those who hold the information. Why should we? But we can trust this God fully. An omnipotent God who makes no mistakes and who wills what is best for his people. And his intent for us never wavers all through life. Interesting expression in verse 18. When I awake, I'm still with you. Through the hours of sleep, when we are helpless, 
God's watching over us. We're not separated from him just because we're not aware of him. And I don't think we're wrong to take the next step and think when we awake from this life. It's often spoken of as death is asleep. When we awake, we're still with him. Sang of that in Psalm 73. Whether we're sleeping and awaking in this world, or we're sleeping in this world and awakening in the next, we're still with him. That's full of comfort and consolation for God's people. The sleep of the night is no barrier to his blessing. And the sleep of death is no barrier to blessing. Indeed, it's the gateway to even greater blessing. Sing in the Traveler Psalm 121, the Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. What reassurance for us who do slumber and sleep. Even the sleep of death, it's not outside the plan of God. The psalmist back there in verse 8 has spoken of making his bed in the grave. And if we do, we awaken God's presence. His power still holds us fast. The Lord possesses all power. He knows all things. He's in all places. He possesses all power. Then the final section of the psalm, the Lord exhibits all holiness. The Lord exhibits all holiness. We've had three omnis so far. Omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. Uh, there isn't an omni for this perfection. If you can think of one, I'll be very happy to hear from you. But the truth is precious. Absolute, perfect holiness of God that pervades Scripture. He is a holy God. Isaiah 6.3, the seraphim cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The three repetitions underline the, the perfection of the holiness. God is a holy God. What does holiness mean? Well, the root idea of holiness in the Old and in the New Testament is separation. It's separation. Separation from everything that is finite and created. God is holy in that sense, separate from all that his hands have made. But he's also separate from everything that's imperfect, everything that is sinful, what we might call his moral holiness. He is separate from all that contradicts his nature. Well and good. And then we read the psalm and suddenly we come to verse 19 and we're going along encouraged and these are delightful perfections of God we've been thinking about. And then we hit 19, if only you would slay the wicked. And maybe we think, I wish the psalm had stopped at the previous verse. 
do we need this? Do we need this talk about judgment and destroying the wicked? Is it not a bit embarrassing? Over these beautiful thoughts about God's power and God's presence and God's knowledge. Can we not leave it at that? Why does David have to spoil it in verse 19? Why is he going on about wrath and judgment and all of that stuff? And the answer simply is, the God who knows all things and the God who is in all places and the God who possesses all power is a holy God. And if we're embarrassed by the closing verses of the psalm, we haven't really understood what the Bible says about God. What the Bible says about God isn't like a supermarket where you can go along and you pick the bits you like and make a doctrine of God that you're comfortable with and you leave out the bits you don't really like. You can't do that. The God of the Bible is as he says he is. And we're not at liberty to pick and choose the bits that we're comfortable with or the bits that we like. How do we deal with these closing verses? I hate them with a complete hatred. Should Christians be saying such things, singing such things? And of course, there are those who say, oh, there's a problem for you, Sam Singers. Look at that. Are you going to sing that? Eh? I hate them with a perfect hatred. Not very Christian, is it? Or is it? The reason for the psalmist's hatred of the wicked is crucial. He's not talking about hating personal enemies. People who've been nasty to him, so he wants God to come along and be nasty to them. If it's you've been bullied, so you get your big brother to come and hit them. That's a caricature of verses like this. It's not what they're saying. Why does the psalmist hate the wicked? Well, we're told quite clearly, as one commentator I've mentioned before, Derek Kidner, uh, writes, he says, the hatred in this passage is not spite, but zeal for God. You notice what David says in verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? It grieves his heart when God is hated. It should grieve our hearts when God is hated. Some of the things we see, we hear in the media that are hatred of God, that doesn't move us. Why doesn't it move us? When hatred for God is expressed, if we can just shrug our shoulders, then there's a serious lack in our spiritual life. The psalmist hates those who hate God. It is zeal for God's reputation, for God's name that stirs him to speak to write in this way. It's not excluding the possibility of the haters of God repenting and being saved. A Saul of Tarsus was saved, persecuting believers. 
It doesn't exclude the possibility of their conversion. But it certainly means that they persist in hatred against God. They deserve divine judgment. And they will receive divine judgment. Now, yes, we do need grace to be able to share this attitude and not turn it into something personal against those who have hurt us in some way. That's a misuse of portions of the Psalms like this if we use them in that way. Not an issue of personal enemies. It's zeal for God's name and God's holiness. And if sinners refuse to repent, judgment is the only appropriate response from a holy God, and that is what they will receive. Holiness of God that deals with unrepented sin, and it must be so. And significant at the very end of the psalm as we conclude, notice verses 23 and 24. David is open to God's scrutiny himself. David is not saying, I'm perfect, they're evil, you judge them, O God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Is open to God's scrutiny. His anxieties and burdens will be known. That his sins will be known and will be dealt with. See if there's any offensive way in me. Deal with it, God. And lead me in the way everlasting. We're to be open to the scrutiny of this holy God. That our sins will be dealt with and that we will be led in the way everlasting. Searched and known. The Lord knows all things. The Lord is in all places. The Lord possesses all power. The Lord exhibits all holiness.